Although the coronavirus pandemic had already been spreading across the globe for weeks and maybe even months, for all we all know, the response in our own country and state activated on a large scale about five months ago at the beginning of the month of March, if you'll remember. And over the course of this time, we've been reminded of some key truths in our Bible studies on Sundays. First, if you'll remember, we looked at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, which reminded us Jesus is bigger than everything else in our life. This world and our life may look and feel out of control, full of chaos and unmanageable, but Jesus has it. We can trust him with it all. We then did a Bible study through the letter of joy, Philippians. One of the main themes of Philippians, as you'll remember, is joy, which that word joy and that idea of joy, it comes up some 16 times in that relatively short letter. We learned that a key to finding joy in our life, even in difficult and challenging circumstances, is moving ourselves out of the center position of our life and becoming Jesus-focused and others-focused. Joy is not a response to the quality of our circumstances, but a byproduct of being in relationship with Jesus Christ and making him the center of our life. We then did a Bible study through the letter of 1 Thessalonians, which makes repeated references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Every chapter of the letter concludes with mentioning, talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We don't know when Jesus Christ is coming back. We don't know if we are in the last days right this moment or not. But Jesus is indeed going to come unexpectedly, suddenly, relentlessly. There will be an end to the world in its present broken, damaged, messed up condition. There will be a day of rescue and reckoning with Jesus rescuing and resurrecting us to be with him forever. Jesus promised us he's coming back and he always keeps his promises. Well, today... We're beginning a study through the book of 1 John, which has as one of its major themes the command to love one another. Our society is like a raging sea right now with the anger and the division surrounding the pandemic and racism and the upcoming elections and on and on. Uh, I can't think of a more important and relevant message for us in this time that we're living in than the one in 1 John. 1 John 4, 7, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. The Apostle John, the person who wrote 
the letter of 1 John. Let's talk about him for a minute. John is believed to have been the youngest of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, and he's believed to have been the last and longest living of the original 12 disciples. He lived to be an old man, dying of natural causes rather than being killed during one of the outbreaks of persecution like many of the other early church leaders had. John had a brother named James who was also one of the original 12 disciples. And Jesus gave those two a nickname, Sons of Thunder, which probably had to do with their dispositions. John and James were very committed and passionate followers of Jesus, but they tended to be hot-headed and ambitious. For example, there's a story recorded in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, about a time when John and James wanted to call fire down from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village because the people there refused to let Jesus stay in their town. Well, Jesus, he rebuked John and James for their attitude, and they went to another town instead. John and James are also the two disciples who pulled Jesus to the side one day and asked if he if they could be the ones who sit at his right and his left hand when he comes into his kingdom. In other words, they were trying to get reservations on the two most important seats of authority and power and honor in Jesus' new kingdom. When the other disciples heard what these two had done, they were angry. Well, Jesus he used the opportunity and the situation to teach all of them that the person who wants to be great in the kingdom of God is the one who chooses to be a servant for others. Jesus said that even himself came not to be served, but to serve and to die as a ransom for many. Well, John, his brother James, and Peter were Jesus' closest and most trusted friends during Jesus' life on earth. They formed this small inner circle among the twelve. They were the ones allowed to be present at the raising of Jairus' daughter, for example, from the dead in Mark 5.37. They were the only ones present at the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark 9. They were the ones Jesus took with him into the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was going to be arrested and then killed the next day he asked them to stay alert and to pray in Mark chapter 14. Well apparently John was Jesus's closest and dearest friend of all of them. John is the one who is referred to as the disciple Jesus loved throughout the gospel of John. He's the one who was leaning against Jesus during the last supper and had that conversation with him about who would betray him. He's the one that Jesus entrusted with the care of his own mother when he was hanging on the cross dying. Of all of the people who ever lived on this planet, no one had more first-hand contact with Jesus during his ministry years on earth than John. This is an important point for us to remember when we get into these opening words of the letter of 1 John. Well, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, John, he served as one of the leaders of the first church in Jerusalem. In his latter years, 
John lived in Ephesus, where he served as a leader of the churches in Asia Minor, a region we know today as Turkey. In AD 95, John was banished for preaching about Jesus to the small island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, kind of off the coast of Ephesus. It was while he was at Patmos that he received and recorded the vision that we have in our Bible called the book of Revelation. John was eventually allowed to return to Ephesus where he then lived out his final days. John's character went through a big transformation over the years as he spent time with Jesus as the Holy Spirit grew the nature of Jesus inside of him. See, John was changed from that quick-tempered, reckless, selfishly ambitious young man that he was when Jesus first met him into a person of love and compassion and gentleness and humility and depth when he was old. When John was an old man, he was known as the Apostle of Love. It's said that when John was very old, not able to even walk under his own strength to get to the church meetings, they would actually carry him to the church gatherings. And it says that he was widely known to repeat the same words to the believers again and again. He would say, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. That was John's mantra. Little children, love one another. Boy, how we need those same simple, profound words of John in our own day. Little children, love one another. Well, the same kind of change that happened to John will happen to us too if we spend time with Jesus and we allow the Holy Spirit to grow his nature in us. As John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Jesus Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. What an incredible thing to look forward to, that we will be like Jesus. Well, when did John write First John? We don't know the exact date since he didn't put a date on the letter when he wrote it, but most scholars believe that he wrote the letter probably between A.D. 85 and A.D. 95, sometime after the writing of the Gospel of John and probably before he was exiled to the island of Patmos in 95. John was an old man when he wrote the letter. He was probably in his 70s or 80s when he wrote 1 John. John wrote five of the books that we have in our Bible. The Gospel of John, the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Well, who did John write this letter of 1st John to? 1st John is unusual among the epistles in the New Testament in that it doesn't have the usual greeting at the beginning of the letter which identifies who the letter was written to. The only other letter or epistle that we have in the Bible like that is the epistle to the Hebrews. First John was written to all of the believers in the churches in Asia Minor, which is known today as Turkey, 
Some of these churches included the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. As with the letters written by Paul and Peter and James, it's most likely that copies of John's letter were also, was also circulated among the other churches around. In that map that I put together for you today, I also included Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth because we have been talking about Philippi, Philippians, and Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, and remember Paul was in Corinth when he wrote the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So hopefully that kind of connects some of the dots for you of the Bible studies we've had over the last number of weeks. Well, why did John write this letter of 1 John? Well, as with many of the epistles of the New Testament, 1 John was written, one, to reassure and strengthen the believers, but Second, to address erroneous teachings that were infiltrating the churches. Knowing a bit about these false teachings that were infiltrating these churches, it helps us understand why John writes some of what he does in 1 John and why he makes a big case for the things that he writes in this letter. The false teachings that were finding their way into the churches John was writing to was an early form of what is called Gnosticism, which became one of the most dangerous heresies faced by the church in the first three centuries of its existence. Very briefly, and I mean very briefly, I don't want to get way off into the weeds on this thing, some of the main ideas of Gnosticism were uh, as follows. First, the central idea was a strict dualism, which held that Spirit is entirely good, and matter, the physical, is entirely evil. Because the body is matter, physical, it was considered evil. So salvation, under Gnosticism, was essentially the escape from the body achieved not through faith in Jesus Christ, but through a special enlightened mystical knowledge that one would obtain. The Greek word translated into English as knowledge is the Greek word gnosis, which is where the name Gnosticism comes from. Gnosticism is, in kind of a literal way, we could say special knowledgeism. Christ's humanity was denied by Gnostic teaching. It was reasoned that because the body was evil, it was impossible for the Christ spirit, the God part, to truly join itself to the body of the human being, the evil part. This led to the belief that either the Christ only seemed to have a body, but never really did, or that the Christ part, the God part, came upon the man part, Jesus, at his baptism, traveled along with him through his ministry, and then left him just before his suffering and crucifixion. This idea that the spirit is good and the body is evil, it also led to different ways of dealing with the body. One way was to live a life of strict asceticism, treating the body harshly, denying it any pleasurable experiences, 
feeding oneself, practicing severe fasting and that sort of thing. Paul's letter to the Colossians confronted that particular flavor of this same false teaching. The other way of dealing with the body was to allow all pleasures of any kind, indulge in whatever kind of sexual pleasure and gluttony and whatever that you wanted to. Don't deny yourself anything. It was believed that God only cared about the spirit, so it didn't matter what was done with the physical part, with the body. Well, John, he confronts that flavor of the teaching here in 1 John. John emphasizes three things in his letter, presenting them as evidence of authentic Christianity. First, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who came in human flesh, what we call the Incarnation. 1 John 4, 2, for example, says this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God versus the Gnostic teachings that were in error, denying that the Christ had come in the flesh. Second, keeping the commandments of God. 1 John 2, 3, for example, says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. In contrast to the false teachings that you could live however you wanted because God didn't care anything about the body. He was only concerned with the spirit. And third, showing love to others, which was putting all of this really into one's life, heart, practice. 1 John 4, 7 He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not love, does not know God because God is love. All three of these things should be present in a real Christian's life, an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. See, Having the right belief that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God and following the commandments of God but lacking love for others is a form of legalism that doesn't represent true Christianity. I mean, in other words, having the right ideas about God but not truly living it from one's heart is the same thing that the Pharisees of Jesus' day were guilty of. You may as well be a block of wood. Keeping the commandments and practicing brotherly love towards others may look good to an outside observer, but denying that Jesus is the Christ, the incarnate Son of, the incarnate Son of God, is removing the very foundation of our salvation. In other words, being a good person does not get us to heaven. We can't ever be good enough to atone for our sins. We need the substitutionary death of Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin and his resurrection from the dead for eternal life. Having the right belief that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God and practicing what appears to be love for others, but living an immoral life, well, that denies the truth of what we profess. In other words, a purely social concern type Christianity, feeding the poor, advocating for social justice and that sort of thing, while ignoring the need for personal holiness, well, that lacks true devotion because love for God is expressed through obeying his commands. John says we need all three things to be a complete, 
genuine, authentic follower of Jesus Christ. We need right theology, we need right behavior, and we need to show others love. A breakdown of any one of these three things leads eventually to a false form of Christianity. We can summarize John's teachings with three words. Believe, obey, and love. Believe, obey, and love. Well, a quick word about John's writing style before we dive into the first verses of this letter. Because John's writing style is different than the style that you encounter in the other epistles of the New Testament. See, John, he doesn't present his argument in a single obvious logical thread that progresses from a beginning to an end, from a point B to a point, or I mean from a point A to a point B, which then leads to a point C. Instead, he presents his argument in more of a spiral fashion, coming back around again and again to the same ideas, presenting them in slightly different ways, adding details, using different angles and ways of expressing those same ideas. So as we go through the letter, it will seem like John is repeating himself, and he is repeating himself to a certain degree. Well, let's begin. First John chapter 1, verse 1. He writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim it to you, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. That's a mouthful. And you know what? These first four verses are a single sentence in the original Greek language that it was written in. But that would be very difficult English to read and understand. So translators have broken it into several sentences for us in English. Well, let's go back up to the top and we'll, and we'll work our way through this. Beginning in verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, referring to the eternal word of life, Jesus Christ, God the Son. We find a similar opening in John's gospel. In John 1.1, he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Before time began, He was. He was before the beginning of all things. There was never a time when He was not. The Son is co-eternal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. John is proclaiming in his letter what has always been true about the word of life, Jesus Christ. He's not introducing anything new, he says here. This is the same eternal truth that was from the beginning. There's a pull within the human psyche for something new, which drives our creativity and desire for exploration and discovery and those are good things. But when it comes to the eternal truth of God, that same pull for something new, it can lead to error 
and false doctrine and bad theology. Nothing can be added to the eternal truth of God expressed in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. Perfection cannot be improved upon. Jesus Christ is perfect. It can't be added to. Continues, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. John is establishing his credibility here and the source of his knowledge for the things that he's going to be writing about. John has had personal, first-hand experience with Jesus Christ. He heard Jesus Christ with his own ears. He saw Jesus Christ with his own eyes. He examined Jesus Christ up close. He touched Jesus Christ with his very own hands. Jesus Christ was not a phantom or ghost. He did not seem to have a body like some of the false teachers were claiming, nor was he simply a man with the Spirit of Christ upon him for a time like some of the other false teachers were claiming. John worked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus, he laughed with Jesus, he cried with Jesus. Are you familiar <clears throat> Are you familiar with the story about the famous put-down of Dan Quayle by Lloyd Benson in the 1988 vice presidential debate? Even if that predates your life, it is such a famous put-down that you may be familiar with because it has become legendary over the years. See, because of Dan Quayle's young age at the time, he was a 41, and his lack of experience in politics, he was asked by the debate moderator to say what he would do if he found himself in the situation of having to assume the role of President of the United States. Well, Dan Quayle, in an effort to defend his age and his lack of experience, began by saying that he was of similar age and had as much experience in Congress as John Kennedy did when he ran for and was elected President of the United States. Well, then Lloyd Benson, the old seasoned senator, 67 at the time, was given his turn to respond, and that is when he uttered the words which have become famous. He said to Dan Quayle, Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you are no Jack Kennedy. Well, the crowd erupted. It was one of the most crushing, humiliating, belittling put-downs ever seen in that kind of debate. People have been imitating and quoting that put-down ever since. Well, the Apostle John's opening words of the letter here are a similar kind of thing. The false teachers who have been introducing these erroneous ideas about uh, you know, the spirit world teaching these churches this stuff, they're kind of like Dan Quayle. They're claiming to know what they're talking about, claiming even to be experts in spiritual things. And now this old seasoned apostle John, like Lloyd Benson, he steps up to the mic, so to speak, and he says, teachers of Gnosticism, I served with Jesus Christ. I knew Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a friend of mine, and you're no Jesus Christ. 
John has a level of credibility and authority that the false teachers can only dream of having. So he continues in verse 2. He says, the life appeared. The life, Jesus Christ, entered into space and time and walked among us on this planet. Or as it says in John's gospel, he dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. He lived with us. He says, we have seen it and we testify to it. I, John, personally saw this life and testify as a witness to the truth of it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. It reminds us again of those opening words of John's gospel when he said, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. John says that he has written this letter to us so that we can have fellowship with him and have fellowship with with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That word translated fellowship, koinonia, in this particular context, it literally means to participate in or to share in. So in other words, John tells us that he's writing to us so that we can participate, we can share with him and others in this eternal life. And this eternal life is being in fellowship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That is eternal life, to have fellowship, to be in fellowship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, this is a reversal of what took place at the fall of humanity back in the Garden of Eden. When we, through our ancestors Adam and Eve, chose to trust in our own self rather than in the Lord, we chose to follow our own way, disobeying His command, it broke our fellowship with God. We no longer shared in His eternal life and death became our reality. We have all been doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did and living with the same consequences. Now, though, through Jesus Christ, we can share in the eternal life of God again because fellowship with God is restored through Jesus Christ. Death has been overcome by Jesus Christ through his resurrection. We have a new future, a new reality that we can participate in, eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has done. 1 John 5.11, John writes this, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Joy is produced in us, when we enter into this fellowship with God, when we share in this eternal life made possible through Jesus Christ. A poem by Ralph Cushman. Oh, the sheer joy of it. 
living with thee, God of the universe, Lord of a tree, maker of mountains, lover of me. Three words to remember in closing today. Do you remember what they are? Believe, obey, and love. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for John's letter and the truths that you have spoken to us through him. We thank you that you've preserved this letter for us, that we can study it in our day. And Lord, we pray today for our, for our lives this week that we would believe in the incarnate Jesus, that we would obey you, and that we would love one another. Lord, we pray that you would make these things so in us, and you would transform our lives the way you did John's life. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.